Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview Christian apologist Sean McDowell. How this generation approaches truth is a benign whateverism. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Sean McDowell is a Christian apologist with two master's degrees and is currently working on a Ph.D. at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Apologetics and Worldview Studies. He's the author of several books, including Evidence for the Resurrection, Apologetics for a New Generation, and Understanding Intelligent Design. Sean, welcome to the show. Luke, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this uh, for some time. Well, Sean, I'd like to start by asking you to share your own faith journey. What is your testimony? Sure, that's a great question. And, and I'm actually interested, since you asked me to share my testimony, did you ask that to, like, atheists or other people? Is that kind of a uniquely Christian question? Well, I do ask the faith journey question to many people, but I use the word testimony, of course, as that's a kind of evangelical, <laughs> get up on that podium and share your testimony. Exactly. I can certainly relate to that. I grew up in a Christian home. In fact, uh, probably to make best sense of my story, uh, understanding who my father is, I, I'm sure many of your listeners will know who Josh McDowell is. He's been in ministry, I don't know, 40-some years, speaking, debating, writing, and kind of his journey was growing up with an agnostic home and really setting out to disprove Christianity and end up becoming a believer long before I was born or before he was married. So I grew up in a home with just with a father who was very driven, very passionate, uh, wrote a lot of books, you know, quote, defending the Christian faith, but also a lot of books on family and relationships. And I, you know, I'm not, I was never really an angry, rebellious kid. I've had a good relationship with my parents. They spent time with me, valued me. And when I was in college, I just kind of went through a pretty questioning, doubting period read a lot of books, you know, for the first time really started reading books that opposed what I believed, challenged some of my dad's ideas, and thought, you know, if I'm really going to believe this, i got to know that it makes sense and that, you know, I'm not just borrowing my, my parents' convictions here. So not only kind of an intellectual struggle, but really an existential angst, so to speak, really coming to terms with whether I believe this or not. And I remember sitting down with my dad in Breckenridge, Colorado, which is kind of a beautiful ski town in the mountains of uh, up about 10,000 feet up in Colorado. And I just, I thought I need to be honest with him. I remember looking right in the eyes and said, Dad, you know, I love you, respect you, I, I want to know the truth, but I'm, I'm not convinced this is really true. And I didn't honestly have a clue what he would say, how he would respond. And it's like he didn't even miss a beat. He looked right back at me and he goes, son, he goes, I think that's great. Because I think that's wonderful. Now, my first thought was, is he really listening to me, or is he just kind of, you know, writing a talk in his head and saying, oh, son, that's great. And he really was. He goes, I sense you want to know the truth. He goes, search with all your heart, and I, I really believe you'll find it. And, you know, know that your mom and I will love you no matter what. And I think that just kind of freed me up to be like, wow, I really do want to know what's true, really want to follow it. So to make a long story short, I just tried to, live my life as much as I can, reading both sides, considering different arguments, and really did come back to the conclusion that, that Christianity is true, and I want to live my life that way. And now you do a lot of work and writing as an apologist and, I would assume, maybe a youth minister or something like that. Is that correct? I actually teach at a Christian high school 
in Southern California, which I do full-time, and it's my seventh year teaching, so I've got a lot of lesson plans prepared and lead a lot of discussions, and on top of that, uh, I do some writing, some of the books that you mentioned. I have one coming out in June and one in September, then I'm not writing any books for a while. The things I'll be writing are dissertation papers and projects. But I do uh, just teach full-time with students. I do speaking. I recently had a debate, you obviously heard. And uh, I'm a dad with two kids, so that keeps me (laughs) plenty busy. Yeah. Well, Sean, I did contact you after I saw your debate against Jim Corbett about God and morality, and I was very impressed with your performance. You remind me a lot of William Lane Craig in the way that you clearly state the arguments, the way you call out and respond directly to your opponent, and the way that you summarize the strength of your own case again and again throughout the debate. I thought it was an excellent debate performance, and I hope you pursue that because I think you're pretty good at it. But I think that the part of the reason you so thoroughly defeated your atheist opponent is that you debated someone who had no knowledge at all of the topic being debated, whereas you have extensive training in the subject of philosophy of religion and ethics. So could you say a bit about that debate and what you think the role of debate is in apologetics in general? Sure. First off, I appreciate uh, the endorsement and encouragement. I've read some of your posts, and you obviously understand the issues and are well-read. So coming from somebody like you, I uh, I appreciate the encouragement. Uh, the debate came about where Jim Corbett is a teacher in at Capistrano Valley Schools, which is in my – we live in the same city, or at least work in the same city, and has been involved in a few court cases – uh, involving statements he had made that were, you know, deemed disparaging of religion or Christianity or uh, creationism. And and interestingly enough, he's also the head of what's called this FAC Club, Free Thinking Atheist and Agnostic Kinship. And the year before, some of my students actually publicly debated his students at our church on the topics of God, intelligent design, morality. And it was packed full, and it was really kind of a riveting, fun experience. And I had met him briefly, he came to my classroom, and we interacted. And so I got an email from a friend and said, hey, do you know this guy, Jim Corbett? He's open to and interested in debating somebody. Would you do it? My first thought was, oh, I've never debated before. I, I speak and teach and, and write, and I thought about it some more. And I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go for it. Here's a great chance to get stretched, do something different. I think it's kind of cool that we had met. Our students had debated. We live in the same town and have kind of – public personas a little bit in a different way. So I agreed to do it, and I I prepped pretty hard. I read a lot. I watched a lot of debates, just talked to people, and just tried to prepare and really, you know, wrote out my speech, had it pretty much memorized, my opening speech, and uh, I I think had a lot of notes, was ready to to roll with it. I think what you said is a good point, And, and I read your response to the debate, how you said, you know, so many people misunderstand the question of morality. I think this is a mistake that all the new atheists make. I mean, they get up there and they rant and rave about the Crusades. They go crazy about the Catholic Church. And it's kind of like, wait a minute, let's establish the nature of reality. You can't just assume objective morality. So that's why I opened my debate saying, look, you don't have to believe in God to be moral. You don't have to believe in God to know morality. People can believe in God and do really bad things. But, you know, you know, my argument was without God, there's not an objective basis for, for moral values. So that's kind of how I approached it. And I, 
I think he was coming along the lines of we're going to debate whether or not religion is good for society and good for the country. And, of course, that's not the way it was worded. So um, I don't know. It might have caught him a little bit off guard. And, of course, he said his, his study is in journalism, and I had studied philosophy. But that's certainly a way a lot of debates seem to go. As far as the role of debate in apologetics, I, I have some mixed feelings about it. I love how interested people are in a debate. I mean, it's amazing. You know, the very day of my debate at Sadabak College, Francis Ayala, who is, a, I think he just recently won the Templeton Prize, written tons of books, including Darwin's Gift to Science and Religion, I think the title is, uh, has written hundreds of professional journals, really one of the leading evolutionary biologists today. He had a lecture on evolution and morality in the overflow room of our debate and had, you know, according to one of my friends, like 40 or 50 people. Now, we had probably 500 people in this debate, thousands watching it online, and he's obviously more established and more experienced than I am, but just this idea of a debate kind of captivates people. So I, I like debate in that regard. What I don't like is it can be very, it can be polarizing, you know, an us versus them and, you know, a lot of people come with their minds already made up going into it. So I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it was a positive way to just kind of be a Christian and treat people. You know, I really wanted to treat him with respect. I wanted to come prepared and show people that ideas matter. And hopefully they would remember kind of the way I carried myself, maybe, you know, more than anything else. So I value debates, but, you know, in terms of overall impact, it's certainly questionable how much you know, influence they have. Hmm. Now, Sean, you're very concerned with Christian apologetics for a new generation, the young generation. What is different about today's youth from their parents that you think requires a different apologetic approach? I'm going to guess the question about apologetics for new generations is from a book I put together, which is called Apologetics for New Generation. That book was actually targeted more for Christians than for non-Christians or, or seekers, so to speak. Some sure. books, like I have a book coming out in, in September called Is God Just a Human Invention? And that's for Christians or seekers or for doubters. You know, I'm not just assuming a Christian audience. That book, Apologetics for New Generation, was targeted specifically for Christian parents, for youth pastors, for teachers, for pastors, because of partly what's called, what has been called the emergent church. And it's kind of been a movement. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yeah. I was part of it, actually, right before I left the faith. You're kidding me. No, not at all. Up in Minnesota, I was part wow. of the emergent church. That is a very interesting discussion I would love to hear about sometime. <laughs> that is, you're right. Minnesota is where some of, uh, I think some of it really kicked off, postmodernizing the faith a little bit. Uh-huh. So you sound like you know well what's going on. And part of it, I mean, there's lots of people involved, lots of ideas. This idea of the emergent church, in some ways, is so big that some people say, what does it actually really even mean? But part of what's come out of it is there's just been a big critique of apologetics. A lot of people staying and, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. We just have to love people and invite them into our community. Don't try to reason anymore. And I just think, number one, that's, that's false. But number two, you know, it's also not, not biblical or helpful. So the book was not a challenge to all the emergent church, but just part of the discussion that says, 
you know, apologetics don't matter anymore. So at the same time, a lot of people within Christian circles were saying, hey, apologetics is not important, and we shouldn't emphasize it. You know, these new atheists are making this sweeping attack that I think are unsettling a lot of people in the church as well. So the reason I wrote that is just to say, all right, look, apologetics still matters. We still need to think. We still need to use our minds. We still need to make arguments. And we still need to engage people on the level of belief and ideas. As far as what's different, I mean, I think people, people are people. And part, part of being a Christian is I think people are made in the image of God, and we are rational. We'll always be rational. I don't think we can step outside of and avoid that. You know, some of the differences might just be, especially with technology, how that affects the way we think, how that affects the way we process information. I think there's also, uh, there's an interesting article in the book about, by a friend of mine named Mark Matlock, and it talks about how emotional development shapes what we believe. And as a whole, I think there's, you know, a lot of studies that show that this is kind of a hurting, emotionally wounded generation of younger people. And let's face it, our life experiences shape the way we process truth and and shape what we believe. So that's just one example of saying, hey, apologetics, it's not about just putting out arguments and just convincing people's minds, but it needs to be holistic. You know, it needs to be relational. It needs to be very thoughtful and intentional, and we need to use stories. So that's the purpose of the book, just to kind of create a conversation, which I think has happened, and to get people to think about how you know, apologetics is still important within the church. Now, you're pretty well studied in both apologetics and philosophy, and so for you, what is the role of apologetics versus the role of philosophy? For example, it seems to me that the word philosophy is usually used for an open-minded and never-ending search for the truth, whereas the word apologetics seems to usually refer to when you basically think you've got something figured out and now you're trying to go out and convince other people of your position. Is that how you see it? That's an interesting question, Luke. I, you know, as you know, philosophy literally means the love of wisdom. And I think wisdom is the artful use of knowledge. Right? There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. So philosophy is really the love of wisdom. You know, it assumes that we have certain knowledge and we know certain things to be true about the world. Um, so I think in a maybe a colloquial sense, philosophy is used as somebody who kind of just sits around and asks, well, why and what's the meaning of life and doesn't come to any conclusions. But philosophy deals with issues like metaphysics, the nature of reality, epistemology, what we know to be true. It also deals with logic, making good arguments and defending arguments and, and reasoning. So I, I think you're right, kind of a popular sense we tend to use, for, you know, a philosopher, somebody who's just kind of never-ending search for truth. But I think a lot of the great philosophers throughout history have had some pretty strong conclusions about what they think is true. Now, apologetics, I, I do agree with you that it does tend to say, all right, here's what I think is true and trying to convince people of it. But I guess I would just be careful to say it's not like on one hand you have an apologist who's 100% convinced about everything, and then the other side there's philosophers who are just kind of, you know, open-minded, seeking after truth. I think there's a, a middle ground. I mean, I'd admit I'm, I'm not certain about everything I believe. I still have questions. I still have doubts. I'm still on a, a search for truth myself in a sense. Uh, but I, I see apologetics as when, when somebody comes to a conclusion of something they think is true, something they believe. Uh, trying to persuade other people that it's true. And I think C.S. Lewis is right. He said the question is not 
you know, are we an apologist or not? He said, every single one of us, regardless of our religious persuasion, are apologists for something. The question is just how effective of an apologist are we? Well, about apologetics, I'm very concerned about the nature of popular atheistic apologetics like Richard Dawkins and also popular Christian apologetics like William Lane Craig, where you don't see hardly any of that basic principle of philosophy, the principle of charity, where you try to represent your opponent's position as charitably and as strongly as you can before you explain why it fails to convince you. For example, when Richard Dawkins attacks theism by focusing on 800-year-old arguments by Thomas Aquinas, or when William Lane Craig goes on and on about the absurdity of life without God without even mentioning the most famous philosophical article on the topic by Thomas Nagel, it seems to me like apologists on both sides are more interested in winning converts at whatever cost than engaging in an honest pursuit of truth and representing the opponent's arguments as strongly as possible and those types of things that are typical of the philosophical dialectic. What do you think about how all of that works? That's a great question, Luke. I definitely share your concern about where apologetics can go. I think some of the the rhetoric and the way issues are debated is unfortunate and trivializes the issues. Personally, I would probably have to come to the defense of William Lane Craig, you know, being put in the same category as Richard Dawkins. I've read Richard Dawkins extensively, and I mean, almost never in his book, The God Delusion, like 400 pages long, you know, does he deal with any of the leading philosophical arguments at all? I think in really any depth, I mean, he hints at him a little bit, but he doesn't deal with any of the leading thinkers like Bill Craig or Plantiga or I don't even think he deals with Swinburne in much in much depth. The point being, I mean, Craig might leave out The Absurd by Thomas Nagel, which I actually haven't read that, although I've read Nagel. I think there's a little distinction between the two. I mean, my experience with Craig, he's a professor of mine. I, I know him personally. I've read his works. I think he, you know, from my experience, I think he is charitable. I mean, he is willing to debate anybody who's qualified on uh, on issues of God, morality. In fact, he even offered to debate Richard Dawkins, and and he turned it down. So I I, sh- I guess I just say I share your concern about the importance of charity, and I think you're demonstrating that on this on this talk show, the way you've communicated with me and brought me on, and kind of allow me to speak to your audience fairly. I appreciate that a lot, but I I might be a little hesitant to put. William Lane Craig and Dawkins. I mean, if you read Craig's stuff, he takes on Dawkins, and I think he represents him very fairly in quite a number of his books. He says, here's what he argues, lists it out and responds to it, you know, wholesale, I think in a pretty fair way. So I'm not sure. On the other hand, I would criticize some Christians. I won't specifically name them here, but there are some Christians who I think are just simply interested in winning converts, even if that means twisting the truth or unfairly representing certain views. And I know of some atheists who are, are really interested in engaging, you know, truth. So I think it can go both sides. I think it's important, especially for this generation, in the way, you know, you're kind of modeling on this call that we just talk about ideas and don't yell at each other or yell past each other and really pursue the truth. Well, moving on to a slightly different question, from your own Christian perspective, do you worry about the corruption of the pursuit of truth 
that might come from doctrines like hell and salvation. What I mean is that, you know, we, we humans already have incredible biases and weaknesses to overcome when we attempt anything like an objective pursuit of the truth. And if you add to that this doctrine that if you don't end up believing this particular way at the end of your journey, then you'll be tortured for all eternity, whereas if you end up believing this particular way at the end of your journey, you get eternal bliss. I mean, that would seem to almost guarantee to badly corrupt any attempt at a objective pursuit of truth. Does that uh, Christian doctrine interference with the pursuit of truth concern you? You know what? I'm not sure that it does. I mean, that's not just a uniquely Christian doctrine. Obviously, Muslims and other other religions will hold similar ideas to that as well. I think someone could maybe flip it around and say, you know, from an atheist perspective, that we're just going to simply cease to exist. It doesn't, you know, matter what we do eternally. Uh, that could also corrupt any attempt at an objective pursuit of truth. For me, in some sense, I, I think it kind of heightens it a little bit. I mean, it, my concern with this generation is, is kind of the opposite. I mean, the book uh, Soul Searching by Christian Smith, who now is at Notre Dame, he wrote it in 2005, and it was based upon the National Survey of Youth and Religion, and pretty much at the end, he said the bottom line view of religion or how, how this generation approaches truth is a benign whateverism. This kind of approach that says it doesn't really matter. It's not that important to me. And that's why I think, you know, this generation as a whole is not given a ton of thought to these big questions. So when you add things like, like heaven and hell, it kind of says, you know what? There are eternal consequences about our beliefs. This matters. So in some sense, I think it heightens the importance of, the, of the, uh, the pursuit of truth. Now, certainly, you're right, you know, thinking about, you know, someone might have purely practical desires to believe in heaven as opposed to believing in hell, but I'm not sure those are insuperable for somebody who's genuinely seeking after truth. It's funny you use the phrase benign whateverism. I gave a speech on a movement called the New Sincerity, and I said that my generation and younger can be described, if we pick one word, it's whatever. Whatever yes. is the word of my generation and younger. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you, Luke. I spend half of my time in teaching just saying, you know, trying to convince students that worldviews matter, that truth matters. I think when, you know, I think when our generation starts to see it, they'll catch on to it, but they're just so distracted, you know, partly by technology that it's just kind of, you know, as opposed to the 60s and 70s when ideas really mattered and people died for them. Now it's like, sure, that's your belief, great, whatever is fine, you know. Well, as a Christian who is concerned with people's eternal souls, do you sometimes think that it's best for Christian apologists to avoid responding to or mentioning their critics. It seems to me like sometimes that happens, and the way that makes sense to me is that, you know, maybe the concern is, well, if the Christian readers look up those critics of Christian apologetics and start reading what the atheists have to say, then they might lose their faith or, you know, condemn their eternal souls to hell, and so this saving of their souls is going to be a lot more important than making sure that they've read every side of the debate. Uh, and I think in particular of 
your father's popular book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, um, there's lots of uh, really specific criticism of the contents of that book that's been written by atheistic scholars, but I'm, at least I'm just not aware of Josh uh, really mentioning those criticisms or responding to them. Maybe I'm just not aware of that. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I actually, I've never asked my dad that question, so I can't really speak to why he may or may not. It's possible that he does. I mean, as far as my dad, I mean, he's done about 250 debates and is certainly someone who's not afraid to tackle, whether it's with some Muslim scholars or atheists or, you know, whoever. So he's certainly not afraid to tackle and deal with critics. That book has been such a lightning rod that there is so much material on there that I don't even know if he would remotely have the time to deal with it in light of some other projects that he's doing. When he originally wrote it, there were very few people doing apologetics back in the 70s. Now there's quite a few people, really a, a whole generation of people that are responding to and maybe not defending the specific you know, book, Evidence and Demands of Earth, but I think defending those ideas. Mm-hmm. So it may be that he just kind of realizes this conversation has taken it on its own and he helped to buttress it. So I can't tell you specifically why I'm, I'm going to ask him now. I'm actually going to see him for dinner tonight. He said, do I sometimes think it's best to avoid responding to critics? I have no problem mentioning critics. I like mentioning critics. That's why on my blog about the debate, I specifically linked to your article. And, you know, you had wrote about 10 pages responding specifically to me <laughs> point by point. And I thought, and I, I actually, believe it or not, I, I appreciated that. I thought, wow, here's somebody who really takes the ideas seriously and thinks I'm worth responding to point by point. And so I... I put it right on my blog. I have no problem with that. What I don't post is there were a couple other people that commented on it that didn't have a clue about the issues, didn't know what they were talking about really. So I would rather avoid even mentioning those people because I think they just muddle the conversation. And I think people, whether Christian or atheist or wherever they're coming from, who don't know what they're talking about can get sidetracked by these really secondary kind of useless, thoughtless objections. So I wouldn't mention some of them. There's plenty of people that respond and write about my stuff, and I'm sure they do yours as well. They kind of look at it and just go, you know, this person doesn't even really know what they're talking about. Why mention them and give them any spotlight, you know, for these ideas? But if there's a critic who knows their stuff and brings a good challenge, I have no problem drawing attention to it and, and responding to it and you know coming on shows like this. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And I appreciate you linking to my criticism of your presentation of the moral argument in the debate. I figured maybe you did that because you were just so happy to find an atheist who actually understood the moral argument. <laughs> you know what? I was pleased by that. There were a few things. I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was pleased that you sung my praises a little bit. I thought, wow, you know, it's not too often that somebody on the other side is telling you you did a good job. That's worth, you know, that's worth something. But the reason I did the debate is I wanted people to think about the, you know, three particular issues that I raised, and you offered a substantive, thoughtful response to it, and you understood the issues. So I thought it all it could do is help advance the discussion. Well, I'll ask you another question about the generation of young people. Are you concerned about biblical Christianity becoming more and more irrelevant to each new generation of people? For example, as people come to know 
the homosexuals around them, they start to realize that these are not evil people destroying society. They're just people giving and taking love where they can, and they have different tastes than you and I do. And it's hard to think of them as being deserving of death by stoning, as the Bible demands. And it seems to me like, as society continues to move forward, biblical Christianity, or the Bible, just gets so it gets further and further in the past, and it just becomes less and less relevant to people. Is that a concern for you? You know, I have a few thoughts about that. I, I, in some sense, people have been saying that the Bible is going to get less and less relevant for centuries, and that Christianity is not going to matter anymore. So this isn't really a new, a new objection. Now, in the West, is it possible that we're moving to become more and more secular in the West? Yeah, that may be the case. I think studies show that younger generations are less and less committed to the Bible or a certain view of the Bible or to the Christian faith. Uh, so it's not so much that I'm concerned that Christianity will be irrelevant, but that people will think that Christianity is irrelevant. But if we look at the global picture, whether places like India, China, uh, Latin America, and even parts of Africa, there is, you know, in some ways a global resurgence of Christianity taking place. So I'm not too worried as a whole that Christianity is going anywhere, but I certainly am concerned for, you know, America where I live and for young people thinking that it doesn't matter anymore. And kind of a side issue, but I don't think the Bible says, in fact, I know the Bible doesn't teach that, you know, our homosexual neighbors and gay people around us ought to be stoned. I think, you know, this is a question we could explore another time, and I think it's dealing with some the Mosaic Covenant in the Old Testament. So, you know, if any Christian tells you that we think homosexuals should be still on that person, is just profoundly misinformed. I know quite a few gay people, whether it's people in my community or whether it's former students of mine. And I think in many ways, as Christianity grows and they know what it really means and what it really teaches and talk about grace and mercy and love, I think it becomes more relevant for people's lives. And I should clarify that I know it's not Christian doctrine that homosexuals should be stoned. That's just uh, Leviticus doctrine. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the Mosaic Covenant for the Jewish people for a particular time. If some Christian communicates that, you know, we think gay people are evil who are destroying society, I would just stop right there and I'd say, boy, you know, these Christian people have it wrong. All of us are made in, in the image of God, and God loves them as much as anybody else. And I don't want somebody to think that I view them that way. Now, are there some people on all sides of the debate that think their opponents are just destroying society irreparably? Sure, those, those people are out there. But, you know, I certainly don't view gay people as a whole that way. You know, ever since maybe 9-11 or maybe since Sam Harris's first book, the public debate over the existence of God and the usefulness or morality of religion has been a major debate in America, maybe for the first time in a, in a long while. What would you like to see in this public debate? What would you like to see? I would like some of the rhetoric to calm down a little bit and some of the name-calling and some of the misunderstanding of the issues. And let's have a civil... I mean, I'm, I'm all for, you know, let's have an intense discussion and, you know, debate is great. But let's just kind of take a look at the issues. Let's have an honest discussion about the role religion has played in history or in American society or place today. Let's ask the questions like I did 
you know, in my debate that you saw about, you know, can morality be explained apart from God? So I understand. I mean, people like, you know, whether it's Glenn Beck or Christopher Hitchens, people who are very animated and take strong stances can communicate in this culture and they're going to make a lot of money. And we just live in that type of world, which is unfortunate. Whoever can shout the loudest sometimes and whoever can make the most noise is going to get the attention. But, you know, my, you know, the way I wanted to communicate was, hey, these issues matter, but let's treat each other with respect and let's explore truth. So I hope, I I heard on uh, Hugh Hewitt's radio show, he called the first decade of the 21st century, the decade of the new atheists. And I hope it's not ending. I love that people like Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins have brought to the forefront questions about God and religion and morality. I just hope we can stop some of these straw men, stop some of the name calling, stop some of the polarizing, and really think about these issues and why they matter so much. Well, John, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you.